Welcome to The Author Reads. Hello, it's that time of the week again, and this week's episode takes us from the shores of the Solway Firth to Jamaica, the Mayan ruins of Mexico, and even to the planet of Cor Huron. All very exotic, and where better to begin our travels than a high-rise in Liverpool. Over to you, Lynn. For a short while, I lived in a high-rise block of flats in Liverpool, and I thought I would share a story with you that I wrote when I was thinking about the block of flats that is now no longer there. It was quite sad day when the flats came down because my mum had ended up being the longest resident there and had a very, very happy life. So this is a little bit of a nod to her. Um, and it's also hopefully something that you will enjoy. So this one is entitled A Vertical Street. It was home, not like any home Cathy Page had known before, but it was a roof over her head. Unconventional housing was the best way she could describe it. Then again, it was like a street that ran vertically, where each floor had semi-detached structures, four to a floor, two on one side of the concrete and glass encased building and two on the other. 15 floors that boasted 60 properties in total, 57 dwellings rented to people who went about their daily lives and three empty spaces that were just there. Front doors all painted a drab blue with a number attached somewhere and a tiny peephole that gave a modicum of security. Yale locked doors that hid one, two or three bedroom flats, all with long narrow hallways. One side had bedroom doors and the other took you past the bathroom and kitchen and ended in the living room. She wondered what it would be like if the building was laid flat, well, horizontal, and in her mind's eye it became a cul-de-sac with the very top of the building forming the dead end. If that was the case, then Cathy lived nearly halfway along the glass and concrete street, floor nine, Willow House. This was her home, a vertical street. The road that separated odd and even numbers was a flight of never-ending drafty stairs that were mainly used when both lifts were out of order. The residents, the traffic navigating a winding hill with a plateau every ten steps or so. Steps that echoed and let you imagine something about each person. The heavy thud of work boots, signalling another shift on the docks was over. The tired tread indicating another long stint of unloading cargo vessels had been done. The clip-clop of heels, possibly a barmaid going to start her evening shift at the international pub that stood proudly on the corner of Church Road and Crosby Road South and hosted people from all corners of the world. A haven for sailors, desperate for a drink on dry land, to get away from the crew and have solitude for a few hours. Dockers and factory workers all eager to slake their thirst with a pint of bass bitter and try the look on the one-armed bandit before heading back home. Husbands and wives sitting in the lounge area of the pub. A bottle of brown ale for him and a chinzano and lemonade for her. More refined and none of the bad language that was part of the very fabric of the all-male taproom. The clattering of many nimble feet running upwards followed by the thundering bang agile jumping sounding downwards. A competition to see who will clear the most steps in one go. 
teenagers sheltering from the rain and entertaining themselves, meeting up to have a crafty fag and aimlessly kick a football against the landing wall until they were chased back out into the cold, wet night by one of the nameless occupiers. Walking downstairs took his life, where people were seen and heard and community spirit thrived. Shopkeepers were always happy to see you and grateful that you came to them, rather than buying everything from the supermarket on Seaforth Road, even though it was cheaper. Chatting with customers who they had known for years, customers loyal to their own even though the couple of quid saved at the supermarket was a bonus in these tough times. The post office, busy on Mondays and Tuesdays as dole checks were cashed. More people joined the queue every week. Snippets of conversation heard from the line of bodies waiting patiently was mainly hoping that the cashier still had money when it was their turn. Money that would be gone in a flash, but was better than nothing. Strained faces of mothers wondering how they were going to make ends meet now that the weekly wage had vanished. The hope of work that never appeared and led to arguments with husbands who were angry that they were on the scrap heap but helpless to change the situation and worst of all, a home all day with nothing to do. With a brood of kids and a husband who had been made redundant, mothers were struggling to keep food on the table, but were still able to hide their worries, still able to smile at everybody and laugh with those who they knew in this close-knit community. Returning to the high-rise building, chugging slowly up each flight of stairs took you to isolation and loneliness, was the way Cathy looked at the stairwell. The higher you went, the more your mood dropped, she thought. Strange how so many people could live here, yet nobody knew who anyone was. Well, she didn't. There was no small talk on the stairwell, and if you got a greeting, you were buoyed up for a little while and didn't feel quite as lonely, and a smile always cheered her up. Maybe that's what she needed to do, learn to smile again. It had been six months ago that she had moved into Willow House, and she had not made a single friend. At first it didn't matter, that's, she was alone. It was how she wanted it. Time to lick her wounds and build her strength. Saying hello to people was enough, but now she wanted more. She was stronger now and ready to live rather than exist. Maybe the stairs had done her a favour. Each little step took her closer to her flat, a sanctuary that had given her time to heal and prepare her for a new way of life. She craved company and laughter and felt ready to go and get it. Maybe, just maybe, she could take a little step to getting to know people. She would start tomorrow. She would start with a smile. The lift door opened, groaning before jerkily sliding sidewards and disappearing into the recess with a clunk. Metal hitting God only knew what, as the small space was fully revealed. As she took a deep breath and quickly stepped over the uneven threshold, Cathy Page sent a silent prayer that she would get to the ground floor quickly. Pressing the closed door button on the control panel, she shuddered as the door once again groaned, reappeared and slowly encased her into this movable box. Please go down, please go down, Cathy implored the control panel as she dragged frantically at the ground floor button and listened for the whirring, clanking noise to start above her head. The signal that the pulley system was working and that uneven jerk, the one that always unbalanced her, meant she didn't have to walk down those endless flights of stairs for the third time this week. It always took her unaware, that jerk, and her stomach sometimes somersaulted in protest as the descent to the outside world began. 
At least the floor was clean and dry today, and as the grinding and shuddering heralded the lift was working, Cathy breathed a sigh of relief and took a short, sharp breath in, holding it, wondering if she would last out. All she had to do now was focus on counting down each floor and seeing if she would hold her breath. Breathing out meant that she had to breathe in again, and if she had to inhale any more of the industrial-strength pine disinfectant fumes, she was convinced that she would pass out. Hurry up, Cathy silently begged. As the lift descended, it suddenly shuddered to a halt, and the door slid sideways. A woman from a lower floor stepped into the lift, dragging a large dog by its collar. Wedging her oversized backside against the gap to stop the door closing on the frightened animal that was half in, half out, the woman bent down and shoved the two shaky back legs with such force that Cathy found a cold, wet nose pressed against her hand, and she smiled warmly at the woman who was mumbling an apology. I like dogs, said Cathy, but I bet it's hard work having one in here. It'd be much easier with a garden, but I bet he's good company for you. He's beautiful. Cathy stood and soothed the shaking form, gently caressing one ear that was as smooth as silk. She smiled again as the dog's tail wagged slowly. Then she felt the rough texture of her tongue slide over her hand that a moment ago was being bumped by the shiny nose of the Springer Spaniel. The woman grinned at Cathy and blurted out, Help but a bloody nuisance and I wouldn't care, it's not even mine. My son's gone to rule for a week's work and left me with this stupid sod. It's chewed me new cushions and all it does is whine at the front door when it's not eaten. Doesn't need much exercise, he said, my son that is, but this thing can run for miles and it never gets tired. The woman tugged on the homemade lead, a length of rope that had been tied into so many knots, it looked like a thick brown plait lying on the dog's back. The worn collar could be an Alice band that had slipped, Alice thought. The woman loosened the huge amount she had wrapped around her hand as a makeshift handle, shaking her hand frantically and wincing as the blood returned, throbbing and tingling. I've lost all the bloody feeling in my fingers again and my palms cut to ribbons. Silly bloody thing, it pulled so hard on its lead it broke, so this is the best I can do. A bit of old rope from the beach. Went mad with me grandson when he fetched it home. Full of muck it was, but I'm glad I kept it now, the rope that was. Can't afford another one, as this dog's costing me a small fortune to feed. I'll be lucky to have me hand in one bit by the time we've done another few miles today, and then it'll be ravenous again. More money spent. Anyway, seems to like you well enough. I hope you don't mind him bothering you. What's his name? Cathy asked, still stroking the dog that had managed to snuggle into her legs and was staring lovingly at her with eyes that begged her not to stop. Mark. Oh, and I'll mark him all right. I'll be knocking his lights out when he gets back. Not much exercise, my arse. The bloody thing's got racehorse in it somewhere. If I was a couple of if it was a couple of foot bigger it I'd be entering it for the national next year. Give Red Rum a good run for its money this thing, and I bet it'd win too. Cathy wanted to laugh, but wasn't sure if the woman would be too happy, as she was so serious when she spoke. Cathy swallowed her laughter and replied, I meant the dog. What's the dog called? The lift bumped to a standstill and the door slid open. The dog bolted out, dragging the woman so quickly towards the open door that separated the building from the street that Cathy was sure the woman would fall. 
The woman who was struggling to stay on her feet was screeching, Stop! My bloody hand's killing me! Cathy was laughing. The absurdity of the scene was fading as the dog neared the corner of Maple Close and the screech grew distant. Then, as dog and woman disappeared from view, Cathy set off walking towards Seaforth Station. Realising she still had a smile on her face, Cathy felt the tears prickle her eyes. It was a long time since she'd had, since she laughed, and the feeling was so overwhelming that it had reduced her to a teary mess. At least these tears were happy, and it was so good to smile again. A genuine smile that reached her eyes and made her see fully that life, like the stairs she had climbed yesterday, was on the up. And from Liverpool to Cor Huron, as Steve reads the sixth instalment of his novella, The Eggs of Saramova, where political rivalries are about to unfold. On Cor Huron, a planet some three years distant from Earth, if you're not bound by the conventional understanding of physics, Morak has just explained to Karen Smallwood that the Saramovans, having been forced to abandon their own planet, have made an agreement with the Kuroronians to allow them to use Kuroron as a stepping stone in their search for a new home. He has also explained that due to unforeseen medical difficulties encountered en route, the entire female population of their migratory expedition are now barren, which is why she, and along with an unspecified number of other human females, have been abducted from Earth as surrogate mothers. We now turn our attention to the politics of the planet as we enter Chapter 4 of The Eggs of Saramova, The Office of Excellence. Sultan looked out over the Kuroronian Sea from his vantage point in the Office of Excellence. The office was located high in the dome of the main pentagon, which formed the hub of the radial Saramovan city. He felt weary after another marathon session with Lon Ti Poo, the region's local potentate and chief ambassador for the Kuroronian Unified Council for Extra Kuroronian Affairs. In truth, Lon Ti Poo himself wasn't a problem, although Sultan did find his bumptious sense of self-importance petty and tiresome. The problem came in keeping Lon Ti Poo and Aido from jumping down each other's throats. Aido was younger and more impulsive, that is to say short-tempered, than Sultan. He was also Sultan's second-in-command, and at that moment was sat at the large pentagonal blue glass table in the centre of the room, seething. You're far too lenient with him, Aido snapped. Sultan continued to look out of the window. He knew what was coming, the same arguments that Aido always put forward after these meetings, or variations on a similar theme. You give the Kuroronians far more than they deserve and credit them with intelligence that they do not have, Aido continued. They are weak, a subspecies. We should command by force. Kuroron is too rich a planet to be run by these imbeciles. Sultan turned slowly to face Aido, his face showing the line symptoms of old age. The Kuroronians are our hosts, he said quietly. We have a contract. As soon as we have managed to reproduce our own species once more, 
and can find a planet devoid of intelligent life, then we shall leave the Kororonians in peace. Until then, we shall bestow upon them the benefits of our technology and culture. That is the agreement, and we shall honour it. We are Saramovans. I do not need you to give me history lessons, Sultan, Aizo snarled. The agreement was made before many things came to light. The richest seams of Kuritzite in the known galaxy, one of the five most abundant goldfields, they can't even control their own people. Lomtipu has promised that the Kamara are on the point of extinction, Sultan flared back. They are cornered in the mountains of Tabuk and will be wiped out within days. Oh, according to Lomtipu, the Kamara are always on the point of extinction, Aido scoffed. This time will be no different. We came in peace, Sultan rounded on Aido, and we shall leave in peace. The first of the earth creatures will be implanted and inseminated tomorrow. Within a year we shall have children once more, and within twelve years they too will have children. Our explorations of the Malojar system look very likely to produce a suitable planet. Why do you wish to risk all this for war and bloodshed? Oh, you are blind, Sultan, said Aida, rising to his feet, his lean, muscular frame quivering with suppressed rage. The Kamara is growing in numbers daily and getting ever more cunning. Its power base moves with the shifting of the wind. There is hate and distrust of us amongst the Kororonian people. Even the troops that Lomtipu sends to kill that self-styled guerrilla leader Connie Moore could easily be swayed by his silver tongue. Mark my word, Sultan, there will be a coup very soon, and when Connie Moore is in command, we shall have to fight a united Kororon. We should attack now before Connie Moore and his camera can take power. There will be no war between Kuroron and Saramova, Sultan roared back. War is for the Zoramin and Moverin. Peace is fundamental to the Saramovan ideology. Then the Saramovans will be wiped out, Aida replied coldly. And I do not intend to sit back and let that happen. He picked up his pipe and walked to the door. Do not count your days in this office too long, Sultan, he said, and turned to give the elder Saramovan an icy look. The parting shot delivered, he left the room. In the cramped conditions of a ventilation shaft below the Office of Excellence, Kangaroo switched off a small recording machine and slipped it into the top pocket of his blue work uniform. Quietly, he propelled his squat body through the labyrinth of shafts until he could see the Kororonian sunlight filtering through the slats of an outer vent. Kangaroo knew the ventilation shafts like the back of his hand. He alone had been responsible for the detailed mapping of them for the camera. How they intersected with each other, the maintenance shafts to the storm drains, the sewers and even the fissures which connected the sewers to the old Malagite mines far below the city, of which the Saramovans knew nothing. He was proud of his work, proud of his position within the Camara, and proud of the way he had inveigled himself into positions of trust within the Saramovan hierarchy. He slid two retaining pins from their sockets at the bottom of the vent cover, 
and placed them in a niche that he had made for that purpose. The vent emerged on the west side of the city wall, secluded from the view of the sentries by the trees of the Kawak forest. Kangaroo slipped out of the vent and stole unnoticed into the undergrowth. The west wall was his favourite route to the mountains of Tabuk. He was afforded protection by the forest until he reached the foothills, whereupon the natural folds of their contours allowed him to travel with the little chance of being seen. Even so, he was careful to vary his path slightly each time he used the route, for fear of leaving a trail that could be picked up by the Kuroronian government troops. This time, however, his route to the mountains of Tabuk would require a slight detour. Pausing every now and then to check on the movements of the troops that he could hear in the forest to the north, he made his way steadily southwestwards through the Malapinkorabar trees, across the Manakara River and its many small tributaries towards the denser woodland of the southern peninsula. Within the hour, he was at the remote hideaway of the hermit, Edward Creed. Back down to earth now, but the excitement continues as Barry Day reads an extract from his intriguing family mystery, A Thread in Time. This is an extract from the novel A Thread in Time by Barry Day. The novel opens with David and his 11-year-old son Joe starting to deal with the aftermath of his father's death. May 2016. David sat on the carpet surrounded by the debris of his father's life. Papers, loose-leaf files, books, old newspapers, photographs. It had been a long, slow death. Death in life, they called it. The way a person gradually evaporates as the dementia progresses, leaving only the husk slumped in a chair in a care home. No recognition, no communication, just a blankness, an aching blankness until the final death which had come two weeks ago. But there had been that moment, that startling moment, back in September. He'd gone to visit his father as usual. It was a Saturday morning of bright autumn sunshine. In the old days, his father would have loved it. The trees turning shades of bronze, the cobalt sky, the dry, cold edge to the air. And when he entered the lounge of the care home, there he was, as usual, sitting by the window, staring out. There was classical music playing in the background, David sat down in front of his father. Hi, Dad, he said, touching his father on his hand and holding it. The hand was cold. Cold hands, Dad, that's not like you. The head moved slowly and the eyes looked towards the hand which touched his. And then the head lifted and the eyes stared at David and looked through him. No recognition, nothing. How about if I wheel you out into the garden? It, it's one of those great autumn mornings, Dad, he waited hoped, but nothing. Outside the garden was still a blaze of colour. Once his father would have been there, hands in the soil nurturing, but now nothing. The music changed and David suddenly felt his father's body tense and his eyes start to move from side to side. At the same time as the new melody started, so he felt the squeeze of his own hand. It was quite a gentle melody, but it seemed to stir something in his father, whose body was shifting restlessly in the chair. 
Then his head started to shake with a kind of ague, and both hands went and clasped over his ears. And as the music swelled in a crescendo, David's father grasped the arms of the chair and tried to stand. My oh! he shouted. Don't go! Dad, it's all right. There, there, it's okay, murmured David, close to his father's ear. It's okay. But in that moment, he turned, looked at David, and still shaking his head, sobbed the words, She's gone! She's gone! He slumped back into the chair, head bent, hands over his face, chest heaving with great gulping sobs. It had taken another fifteen minutes for the tension in his father's body to subside, and then he sank into a deep, snoring sleep. When he shouted, the duty nurse had hurried over and put her arm around him. "'What was the music that was playing?' asked David. "'Oh, just some playlist we used,' said the nurse. Uh, "'It seemed to affect my father, stirred something in him. "'Let me find out,' she said. "'She returned with a piece of paper which showed the playlist. Uh, "'It seems it was this one,' she said. "'And David read the words. "'Andante, piano concerto number two, Shostakovich. "'Thank you,' he said, nodding at the nurse.' And since that day he had listened to the piece a number of times on his phone. He still felt the squeeze of his father's hand, the eyes darting, the tensing of the body and the words, she's gone, and the sobbing. Something deep in his father had surfaced for that brief moment and it nagged at David like a haunting. David's son Joe was across the yard in his granddad's workshop. Pops, he used to call him. He'd always loved the smell as you opened the wooden door and went inside, wood shavings and oil. Pop had said it was the resin from the wood which gave it that scent, a comforting smell. But without Pops there, it was not the same. He'd told Joe the story of the building of the workshop, of having the wooden planks and beams delivered from the sawmill and building the frame on the ground, then hoisting it into place with the help of his friends. Joe liked that idea of friends coming together to build a workshop. He ran his fingers along the edge of the workbench, looked at the tools all fitting neatly into their places. At the end of the bench was an antique chair and a desk. In front, the old office desk that his, father, his grandfather used to sit at. The desk had drawers down one side and a cupboard on the other. It was where Pops would sit when he was drawing plans for his projects. And Joe had never sat in Pops' chair before. It had a shiny green cushion on the seat and the arms were curved in such a way that they wrapped round to form the back of the chair. Joe sat down and ran his hands down the smooth curves of the arms. He leaned back and placed his hands on the top of the desk, ran his fingers along the edge of the desk following the curving grain of the wood. In the front of the desk, just above Joe's knees, there was a desk drawer. He pulled it open. Inside there were more pencils, a small set square, and a tiny spirit level with polished brass ends. Joe opened the drawer a little further. To the rear of the drawer there was a wooden box with some intricate patterning across the edge. He brought it out into the light and set it down on top of the desk. It was a cigar box with an elaborate design on the front, a crown on the top of what looked like an arch of red curtains with gold fringing, like on a theatre stage. Royal Jamaica, it said, in gold lettering. When Joe opened the lid of the box, there was no cigar, but still the vague hint of tobacco. Filling most of the box, however, was a notebook with a dark blue hard cover. 
In the bottom right-hand corner of the cover, some handwriting, small and neat, it read, Will Pearson's Jamaica Journal, 1974. David turned at the sound of running footsteps along the hall. Dad! Dad! I found something! Joe stood at the door, panting after running from the workshop. He went across to David and handed him the cigar box. There's a book inside, he said. I think it's a diary. David opened the box and frowned as he looked at the cover of the notebook. Jamaica? His dad had never mentioned ever being in Jamaica. He opened the cover and started reading. The Jamaica Journal of Will Pearson. My first venture into serious writing. Here's to posterity. August 20th, 1974. Kingston Airport. Getting off the plane, the heat slaps you like a hot towel. Air thick with humidity. The blue mountains hazy in the distance beyond the city. Tricky landing. You approach over the harbour towards this thin spit of land which branches like a curved arm out from the coast. They call it the Palisados Peninsula, where the pirate Henry Morgan had his hideout at Port Royal until it was destroyed by an earthquake. Lots of noise and clamour at the airport. Young Jamaican guys in cowboy hats arriving from Miami meeting their families. Lots of swagger. Hey, brother, you looking cool, man. I'm picking up on the accent. Met by Jim Suarez, a young American guy also with the company. Clean-cut, friendly, took me by car to the Sheraton Hotel where I'm booked in. Then to an old plantation mansion called Devon House just down the road, Hope Road, close to where the Prime Minister's place is. Drank my first Jamaican rum punch. Very exotic, like a fruit cocktail. Kingston's a mishmash of some new high-rise offices and apartment blocks, but a lot of beat-up shacks with donkey carts and goats in the street and market women sitting by the roadside selling fruit and other stuff. Quite a culture shock, but exciting. David closed the journal. This was bizarre. A period in his father's life he knew nothing about. His mother had never mentioned a connection with Jamaica. He knew his father had worked abroad as a young man somewhere in Central America, he thought. But not Jamaica. It had never been mentioned. And so the diary reveals uh, for David a life of emotional turmoil for David's father, which leaves David with some questions which have to be answered. And so in the second part of the book, David and Joe set out on a quest to Jamaica to solve a family mystery. Now, if you're interested to read more, uh, A Thread in Time is available from Bookends in Carlisle or from Amazon. And if you want to read more background uh, on the book itself and on the author, go to www.barryday.co.uk. Thank you, Barry. Definitely want to add to the reading list. But sadly, that's all we have time for this week. But don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode of The Author Reads. Bye. Bye for now.